This week, Bosch Health hires legal and financial advisors, transfers Bosch and Lom shares to unrestricted subsidiary, CareStream Health files prepackaged Chapter 11, Reorg publishes Bed Bath & Beyond Waterfall Model and a Gradient-Powered Analysis of Cruise Industry. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where I bring the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. This week, we've got a special double dose of content for listeners. First, a crossover from our sister Mia Core Credit Weekly Podcast, where Reorg's Harvard Jang brings us the latest in a potential Cineworld Chapter 11, and Mark Fisher shares some insights powered by data from Agridium on the cruise sector. Next, we offer a replay of a recent webinar where the Reorg team discusses the latest events surrounding Bosch Health, including its proposed spinoff of its Bosch Alarm business to shareholders, threats from competition for the company's Ifaxan drug in light of patent challenges, and a pending maturity wall. It's Friday, August 26th. This week, Reorg published its waterfall analysis, projecting recoveries for Bed Bath & Beyond's unsecured notes in a hypothetical Chapter 11. Reorg's analysis also assumes a bankruptcy plan that includes liquidation of the company's Bed Bath & Beyond banner and going concern sale of the Bye Bye Baby brand. The analysis uses the company's most recently reported capital structure, but does not incorporate a potential new file facility, details of which were not disclosed at the time of publication. The company is close to securing a $400 million loan from Sixth Street Partners as it seeks to shore up liquidity amid deteriorating sales. The loan is being priced in the low teens. The retailers have been working with J.P. Morgan to place a $375 million Philo term loan. The company offered to pledge inventory and intellectual property, including Bye Bye Baby, as collateral for the Philo facility and valued its IP at $170 million. Lenders, however, have questioned the value of the collateral. Reorg assumes a midpoint valuation of $550 million for Bye Bye Baby. However, according to market sources, the range of estimates for potential value from Bye Bye Baby is very wide. Sources told Reorg that the value of the brand could be as low as $100 million and upwards of $1 billion. To access Reorg's in-depth coverage of Bed Bath & Beyond, including a spreadsheet analysis which enables subscribers to adjust assumptions and produce different outcomes for recovery, please reach out to a Reorg representative. CareStream Health, a Rochester, New York-based provider of medical imaging and non-destructive testing products, filed a prepackaged Chapter 11 on August 23rd, premised on a restructuring support agreement entered into with prepetition lenders holding approximately 73% of first lien claims and 99% of second lien claims, along with certain equity holders, including majority owner Onyx. The RSA supporting lenders include members of an ad hoc group of crossover holders of first and second lien debt represented by Aiken Gum. According to the first day declaration, the bankruptcy resulted from the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on the overall industry and a shift in demand to digital-only products in developed markets. As sales to buyers in developed markets as a portion of all digital print sales fell from approximately 24% to just 4%. The company has also faced downward pricing pressures in emerging markets due to, among other factors, the Chinese government implementing volume-based procurement strategies to secure testing and imaging products on a consolidated basis for healthcare purchasers around the country. CareStream also had substantial disruption from the global supply chain and global inflationary pressures. The company has had revenue declines of approximately $100 million since 2018. The proposed restructuring would deleverage the balance sheet by approximately $470 million. The RSA plan would provide for $75 million equity rights offering, pursuant to which second lien lenders would receive the right to purchase 80% of new common stock at a subscription price of $9.375 per share. The RSA and plan also contemplate a new $85 million ABL facility and a new term loan facility for $536 million to $547 million. The company is seeking to implement the restructuring within 30 to 45 days and targeting a September 28th combined hearing on plan confirmation and disclosure statement approval. The debtors investment banker Hulahan Loki estimates that the total enterprise value of the reorganized debtors will be within the range of approximately $658 million to $777 million 
on an assumed effective date of October 1st, with an estimated midpoint of $714 million. The total equity value is estimated to be $158 million to $276 million, with an estimated midpoint of $213 million. An ad hoc group of secured lenders to Bosch Health is organized with Gibson Dunn as counsel as the pharmaceutical company evaluates strategic alternatives. The organization comes as the company disclosed on Monday that it had retained Houlihan, Loki, and Whiten Case to assist with evaluating potential strategic alternatives. Concurrent to disclosure, the company said that it transferred 38.6% of the issued and outstanding shares of Bosch and Lom Corporation to an existing wholly owned unrestricted subsidiary as part of the process of spinning off Bosch and Lom. Common shares in an amount equal to approximately 50.1% of Bosch and Lom continue to be held by a wholly owned restricted subsidiary of the company, and Bosch and Lom itself remains a restricted subsidiary of the company. Bosch Health continues to hold approximately 88.7% of the issued outstanding shares of Bosch and Lom after the transfer. Bosch Health's second quarter 10Q stated that upon closing of the Bosch and Lom IPO and after giving effect to the partial exercise of the overlawment option, Bosch Health directly or indirectly holds 310.4 million Bosch and Lom common shares, which represent approximately 88.7% of Bosch and Lom's outstanding common shares. On Thursday, the company, in a letter filed in the Bosch and Lom spinoff fraudulent transfer action, denied the security plaintiff's assertion that the recent district court decision invalidating certain Zyfaxon patents has left the company in a precarious financial position and teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. Plaintiff's accusations of deepening insolvency and impending bankruptcy are made complete without basis, the company said. REARG undertook an analysis of the cruise industry this week using financials from Agridium to compare operators and to build a view on performance. Agridium collects quarterly financials and key performance indicators for each of the major cruise lines, including Carnival, Royal Caribbean, Norwegian Cruise Lines, TUI Cruises, and Hertugratin. Agridium is REARG's fundamental data product focused on the leveraged finance universe, allowing users instant access to financial reporting of high-yield issuers and leveraged loan borrowers. Users can easily power their models with our Excel add-in or dashboards and reporting via an API and can screen and visualize the data. The largest three cruise ship companies, Royal Caribbean Carnival and Norwegian Cruise Lines, were able to generate positive operating cash flow in the second quarter, the first such period since the beginning of the pandemic, largely supported by a sharp rise in deposits. Deposit growth could continue to be a positive indicator for revenue in 2023 as operators attempt to overcome higher fuel prices, higher labor costs, and a significantly higher interest burden. However, excluding deposit growth, Royal Caribbean was the only major cruise ship to report positive EBITDA in the period. Pricing was held back on weakness in Europe as cruise travel remained local, but based on the cadence of operating reports, pricing might have increased through the spring and summer months. Our analysis found a rebound in LTM revenue of cruise companies since the 2021 trough. While the LTM revenue has grown around threefold across the three major cruise line operators from the year ended December 31st, 2021, the benefit of increased utilization has yet to flow into EBITDA, which remains subdued on an LTM basis, as some costs have grown faster than the impact of increased utilization on revenue. For example, fuel, payroll, and SG&A in the LTM period to June 30th, 2022 came in above the levels recorded prior to COVID-19 for Royal Caribbean and Norwegian. Looking at the quarterly results, revenue has begun to approach pre-COVID levels, with results in the second quarter coming close to fourth quarter 2018 levels. By the end of the second quarter, occupancy had returned to 90%. However, only Royal Caribbean was able to achieve positive EBITDA as companies were not able to overcome higher costs. Carnival's second quarter ends in May, and the group therefore did not experience the same ramp-up in sailings as other operators in the reporting period. To access REARG's in-depth analysis of the cruise industry, which includes reports for each individual track company and links to Agridium, please reach out to a REARG representative. 
Top red stories this week included minority post reorg unit holders accused SVP of violating fiduciary duties by forcing secret squeeze out WPG merger for grossly unfair consideration. Fifth Circuit affirms Highland Capital plan confirmation in large part rules out plan exculpation except for committee and trustee under strict standard for non-debtor releases. Rockies Express Pipeline dismisses appeal after Fifth Circuit repeatedly upholds for contract rejection. Endo Affiliate seeks injunction against Nevacart to preserve injectables assets worth hundreds of millions of dollars in Chapter 11 sale process. And now here's Kathy Ta from Los Angeles with The Week Ahead. Hello, this is Kathy Ta, and here's The Week Ahead. On Monday, August 29th, the Talon Energy Supply debtors will be in court to ask for approval of their amended backstop agreement with consenting unsecured note holders. Judge Marvin Isger continued the motion from earlier this month to facilitate discovery efforts by the ad hoc group of term lenders and secured note holders and non-debtor parent Talon Energy Corporation. The confirmation hearing and OSG group holdings will also take place on Monday, August 29th. The debtors are working to resolve informal objections, including from the U.S. trustee, as they face an August 31st RSA milestone for emergence. The debtor's step will also be up for final approval that day. The $26.3 million junior secured super priority facility consists of $15 million in new money loans, plus a 4% payment in kind commitment fee, and a $10.7 million partial roll-up of existing second lien claims. Wilmington Trust is the administrative agent and collateral agent on the dip, with existing second lien credit agreement lenders as the dip lenders. Talon Energy Supply will be back in court on Tuesday, August 30th. The debtors will press for a litigation injunction to stop three non-bankruptcy lawsuits from proceeding against non-debtor co-defendants in the name of protecting the debtors' restructuring efforts. In one of the suits, the state of Montana has filed a competing motion to lift the automatic stay to continue litigating ownership of riverbeds used by Talon Montana for hydroelectric power plants. Also on Tuesday, August 30th is PWM Property Management's confirmation hearing on the Park Avenue debtors' plan of reorganization. The plan incorporates a settlement with parent HNA Group North America and has garnered the unanimous support of all impaired voting classes. There are multiple hearings on Wednesday, August 31st. First, the Sears Holdings debtors and official committee of unsecured creditors will seek approval of a global settlement of litigation between the estates and former CEO Eddie Lampert and his ESL companies and other former directors and officers, among other parties. The agreement, if approved, would provide an immediate cash influx of more than $180 million into these states, which would be sufficient to pay administrative expense claims and put the effective date within reach. That same day, the SunGuard Availability Services debtors will ask for conditional disclosure statement approval for their dual path sale and equitization toggle plan. The debtors will also seek approval of a sale of the majority of their U.S. co-location assets to 365 data centers for $52.5 million in cash. The debtors are continuing to evaluate bids for their other assets, including recently announcing a sale of their North American cloud and managed services business to 1111 Systems. The first guarantee mortgage debtors will also be in court on Wednesday, August 31st. The debtors will seek approval of their settlement with Freddie Mac, resolving Freddie Mac's claims, including for mortgage repurchase obligations and outstanding accounts receivables. Under the deal, Freddie Mac would purchase up to $25 million of eligible mortgages and assign its service contract with the debtors to BSI Financial Services, one of the debtors' pre-petition servicers. A related sale motion and adequate protection motion will be heard at the same time. 
Also slated for Wednesday are oral arguments in phase three of the lean litigation in Sanchez Energy, now known as Mesquite Energy, over the allocation of 80% of reorganized equity. Phase three focuses on valuation and final determinations on the avoidability of liens on oil and gas leases, allegedly representing more than half of Sanchez's value. Moving to Thursday, September 1st, the Celsius Network debtors will ask for approval of bid procedures for the potential sale of their equity interest in the non-debtor GK8 Limited. GK8 operates a crypto cold storage platform. The debtors will also seek final approval of their cash management system. The U.S. trustee has raised a novel issue with respect to the motion as to whether the debtors' cryptocurrency assets qualify as money under the bankruptcy code. As for earnings, they will be reported by PetSmart on Tuesday, August 30th, followed by C-Drill on Wednesday, August 31st. That's it for me on this Friday, August 26th. Let's remember that today marks the one-year anniversary of the attack outside the Kabul International Airport, the stage of U.S. military evacuation efforts during the U.S.'s drawdown in Afghanistan. The attack killed over 180 people, including 13 U.S. service members. Five days later, on August 31st, the U.S. declared an end to the 20-year war in Afghanistan, the longest war in U.S. history. Now back to you in New York. And now Katerina Dassey and Richard Woolley of our sister EMEA Core Credit Weekly podcast speak to Reorg's Harvard Zhang about the latest on a potential Cineworld Chapter 11 and welcome Mark Fisher to share some insights on the cruise sector powered by data from Ingridium. Next up, we have Harvard Zhang, an associate editor in our New York office, to talk about Cineworld, the second largest movie theater chain in the world. So tell us what's the latest. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we reported last week that the company parent to Picture House and Regal uh, is considering filing for Chapter 11 in the US to restructure its more than $5 billion of debt. And of course, to address its liquidity crunch and a $950 million negative court judgment. Um, sources told us that the company is in confidential discussions uh, with its lenders and a debtor in possession financing is expected. Uh, the company issued a press release after the weekend on Monday and confirmed that a possible voluntary Chapter 11 filing in the U.S. is one of the strategic options. Okay, so um, since the onset of COVID in March 2020, what has Cineworld done financially and operationally? Yeah, so as you can imagine, when the pandemic started, it's total lockdown and nobody was going to the movie theater. So when you have a zero revenue situation, you can expect the company to preserve cash, try to raise additional capital, and do everything it can to cut cash outflow. And that's exactly what Cineworld did. The company closed all its locations that year and subsequently reopened uh, the next spring. I think they actually burnt more cash with theaters open than closed, and they negotiated with landlords to cut and defer rent payments. Uh, they got covenant waivers and amendments from lenders um, to give themselves more breathing room, and they issued more debt to get liquidity. But the additional money didn't come without strings attached though. Basically, whatever the company now wants to do financially, they need the consent of this group of secured lenders. And with the lineup of movies um, for later this year not looking great, and admission levels keep missing expectations and falling below uh, pre-pandemic levels, the cash burn just doesn't stop. And the company kind of uh, acknowledged this, um, this kind of um, a potential liquidity crunch as a, a trigger for a uh, comprehensive uh, restructuring. Um, so Harvard, uh, in a potential Chapter 11, what do you think are some of the developments to look out for? 
Yeah, definitely going to see how Cineworld and Cineplex resolve their merger dispute. Um, Cineworld is now on the hook for nearly a billion dollars after a Canadian court sided with Cineplex uh, following the canceled merger uh, after COVID started. Uh, one may argue it was buyer's remorse. Um, anyway, and some people argue, you know, the claim that Cineplex um, has or would have in a bankruptcy filing would be um, unsecured claims. So very important issue and definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, a trial in an appellate court was supposed to happen in October, but maybe Cineworld will file before then. And of course, with any restructuring, um, inter-creditor tension and how to distribute economics, um, something definitely to follow. Um, some lenders provided super priority loans in the past two years, and then below them there are revolver lenders, term lenders, rest of world lenders, and below those convertible note holders. Uh, so to the extent there are cross holders and you know pure one tranche lenders, we may see different people arguing arguing for different things uh, to protect their interest. So definitely something to keep an eye on. The cruises sector was particularly badly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, but is now showing signs of recovery. Reorg analysts used data pulled from Agridium to compare operators in the sector and to build an overall view on performance. I asked New York-based Director of Credit Research, Mark Fisher, for an overview. Thanks, Rich. Using Agridium and internal company models, Reorg studied the latest quarterly results for major cruise line operators. This is the first quarter since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic that the largest three cruise ship companies, Royal Caribbean, Carnival Corp, and Norwegian Cruise Lines, were able to generate positive operating cash flow. However, cash flow was largely due to a sharp rise in deposits as only Royal Caribbean was able to generate positive EBITDA. Companies experienced a sharp rise in quarterly revenue, which in the June quarter approached levels seen in 2018. However, while revenue has recovered, the benefit increased utilization has yet to flow into EBITDA. Some costs have grown faster than the impact of increased utilization on revenue. For example, fuel, payroll, and SG&A in the last 12 months period to June 30th were higher than levels recorded prior to COVID-19 for Royal Caribbean and Norwegian. Fuel in particular represents significant cost for cruise lines. Fuel prices have more than doubled since 2019. For instance, Carnival spent $1.5 billion on fuel in 2019 and therefore could spend approximately $3 billion of current fuel prices per metric ton on an annual basis when operating at full capacity. Other inflationary pressures include food and labor. Royal Caribbean had higher labor costs in the LTM period ended June 30th than all of 2019 and the company spent more on food in the second quarter than any quarter in 2019, even though occupancy and capacity were well below peak levels. On the positive side, deposit growth could be a positive indicator for revenue in 2023. Pricing in the second quarter was held back on weakness in Europe as cruise travel remained local, but based on the cadence of operating reports, pricing might have increased through the spring and summer months. A number of companies anticipate higher pricing in 2023. From a valuation perspective, enterprise value across the three main operators was around the level seen in 2018 albeit with equity cushions significantly thinner, with all three companies boasting LTVs of around 70%. To plug cash flow holes during COVID, operators largely used debt financing and have significantly higher debt balances than pre-pandemic levels. For instance, Royal Caribbean's debt balance grew by over $12 billion since 2020, and Carnival Corp's debt balance grew by over $25 billion during that same time period. Over 80% of new financing since the start of 2020 has been in the form of debt. 
As noted, the report relies in part on data from Agridium. Agridium is Reorg's fundamental data product focused on the leverage finance universe, allowing users instant access to financial reporting of high yield issuers and leveraged loan borrowers. Users can easily power their models with our Excel add-in or dashboards and reporting via an API and can screen and visualize the data. Next, we offered a replay of a recent webinar where Reorg's Mark Fisher speaks to Kevin Eckhart, Peter Washkowitz, and Wing Lee about the latest events surrounding Bosch Health, including its proposed spin-off of its Bosch Online business to shareholders, threats from competition for the company's Ifaxin drug in light of patent challenges, and a pending maturity wall. Good afternoon. I'm Mark Fisher, Director of Credit Research. At the beginning of 2022, Bosch Health, confident in its ability to generate cash and reduce leverage from the monetization of certain assets, embarked on an aggressive, shareholder-friendly transformation. All this against the backdrop of a daunting maturity schedule beginning in the year 2025. The company is still in the process of spinning off its Bausch & Loam business and appears unable to hit leverage targets, as Wing Lee, Reorg's corporate credit analyst, would detail. Additionally, given what a spin could do to leverage and cash flow prospects, certain credit investors are against the spin, especially in light of recent events. Peter Washkowitz, Head of Covenants will walk us through his view of what's allowed and what the company would need to do in order to complete the spin. Kevin Eckert, Deputy Managing Editor of Legal, will walk us through the litigation side of not only the proposed spin, but a whole host of other issues. These include securities litigation, a likely and likely the biggest fear among investors an obstacle for the company, a negative patent ruling on the company's largest selling drugs at Vaxxin. Our whole team will talk about what it would mean to lose exclusivity on Zafaxin, including if results are so bad and the loss of cash flow is so great that it leads to a Chapter 11 filing. For those that have been on prior calls, we will, we will be conducting this webinar a little differently today in, a peer, in hopes of making it more interactive. Please submit your questions at any time during the webinar. We have organized the webinar by the following topics to make time easier for your questions. You can ask questions anytime using the Q&A widget located on the bottom of your screen. Please note that a replay of this webinar with slides will be available on the Reorg webinar and podcast page within two business days for Reorg customers. So let's get started. Wing, entering 2022, although Bausch knew that it faced significant maturities, the company seemed confident to proceed with a leveraging spinoff of its Bausch and loan business. I assume it felt its cash flow was still strong and its plans would ultimately reduce leverage. Please frame the situation for us, starting with the company's capital structure, expected cash flows and plans, including the Bausch & Loam spin and planned share sale of another unit, Salta. Thanks, Mark. So this is the company's capital structure as of August 9th. So what happened was in the company's second quarter 10Q, the company disclosed that um, $550 million of outstanding borrowings were um, on its credit facility. This is an increase of 125 million from as of the end of the second quarter, June 30th. Uh, so the company had approximately 19.7 billion of total debt on its capital structure, of which 7.9 is first thing debt and approximately 11.8 is unsecured debt. The company has approximately 3.25 billion of upcoming debt maturities in full year 2025. 1.75 of that is the 5.5% senior secured notes due November 2025. And the other is 1.5 billion of the 9% senior unsecured notes due December 2025. As of yesterday, August 15th, the 5.5 secured notes were trading at were trading approximately at 
and the 9% unsecured notes are trading at approximately 77. Um, in terms of liquidity, which we'll dive into a, a bit deeper later, Bausch had 732 million of liquidity, consisting of 385 million of availability under its revolver and 347 million of cash. Now, let's turn to cash flow projections. For full year 2022, uh, Reorg estimates that Bausch Pharma and Bausch, sorry, Bausch Pharma and Sultamedical estimate to generate approximately 400, sorry, 646 million of cash flow based on the company's guidance. In our assumption, we'd use the midpoint of the company guided adjusted EBITDA of 2.31 billion and 50 million of CapEx spend. Reorg calculates Bausch's cash interest to be 1.35 billion based on the company's pro forma capital structure as of August 9th. This is in line with the company's guidance of close to of approximately 1.4 billion. Our assumptions also assumes a 70, 172 million of cash taxes based off of historical cash taxes as a percentage of EBITDA. Um, so the company chose to spin off Baoshan Long on May 10th, earlier this year. In doing so, the Remain Co., which consists of Bausch Pharma and Salta Medical, increased its net, its net leverage to 7.9 times, up from 6.6 times before the spin. Earlier in the year, Bausch Management believed it would be able to achieve the 6.5 to 6.7 net leverage ratio by reducing debt using proceeds from the Bausch & Long IPO and Salta Medical IPO. Also, during the J.P. Morgan Health Conference call on January 11, management said that the pharma business would be able to deliver 0.75 times for the next five years. However, management did not mention this on the second quarter's earnings call. Also, during the first quarter earnings call, following the Bausch & Long IPO, prior CEO Joseph Papa said that, said that the company was committed to deleveraging Bausch Pharma to 6.5 to 6.7 despite a lower than expected IPO price of $18 a share and the decision to delay Salta's IPO. Papa added that given current market conditions, they decided to proceed with a smaller IPO offering than originally intended. And at closing, Bausch Health would own 90% majority stake in Bausch & Long. He also added that Bausch, and Health, Bausch Health would have the flexibility to monetize approximately an additional 10% of Bausch & Long to, to lower debt. Current, current Bausch & Lohm CFO and prior Bausch Health CFO, Sam Elisuki said that the IPO proceeds from Salta would be used to repay some of the debt back at the pharma level. The remaining Salta ownership would be a corporate asset for Bausch Pharma to use and to help the lover either through future equity sales or EBITDA growth or a combination of the two. However, since then, Bausch suspended Salta's IPO in light of challenging market conditions and other factors. Um, and so for Bausch, sorry, for Salta Medical, their revenue was flat year-over-year year in the first quarter and declined 21.9 year-over-year in the second quarter. If Bausch chooses to sell an additional 10% of Bausch and Loan equity, Net leverage could fall to 7.6 times all else equal, as shown in our leverage slide. However, the spinoff of Bausch & Lohm would mean losing, on average, north of 40% of total company revenue, 
and approximately 25% of total EBITDA. Upon the closing of Bosch & Loeb's IPO, the Remain Co. sold 10% of Bosch & Loeb's equity for total proceeds of $675 million. Despite the Remain Co. owning 90% of Bosch & Loeb's equity, in the second quarter's earnings call, Sam Elisuki said that there is no sort of requirement or mechanism for cash transfers to the parent company if Bausch Health needed additional cash. Bausch & Loeb also generated $680 million of free cash flow for full year 2021, accounting for nearly 59% of consolidated Bausch Health's 2021 free cash flow. Bausch Pharma and Solta combined to generate one, a little less than $1.2 billion of free cash flow. A lever that Bausch could pull to reduce net leverage is to resume the planned IPO of Solta Medical. However, however, this option might not be enough to get Bausch to its target leverage ratio of 6.5 to 7.5 of 6.5 to 6.7 times. We have actually written an article back in May that concluded that Bausch would have to sell Solta at approximately 28 times EV to revenue ratio or a 48 times EV to EBITDA ratio, assuming 30% of common shares are sold during Solta's IPO to achieve the midpoint leverage of 6.6 times. Thanks, Wayne. Uh, so first, I'd like to just remind everybody that if you want to get more detailed financials, comprehensive Bausch financials are included in, in Agridium by Reorg, which provides fundamental financial data on bonds and loans for issuers in US and Europe. Uh, but sticking to Bausch and Loan, because it, it seems that, you know, as Wayne said, that SALTA might be temporarily off the table. So let's just stick with Bausch and Loan for a little bit. Peter, why don't you discuss with us um, just more of the spin uh, in, in detail? There's clearly you know, some people that are, are against uh, the, the spin, but walk us through what you've learned about how the company uh, is able to proceed with the, uh, with, with the spin and maybe any sort of obstacles um, in the covenants related to it, if you found any. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, the company did an amendment to its credit agreement uh, in the in the beginning of the year, um, and so under the credit agreement, the only uh, the only test that it needs to meet to complete the um, the the, the spinoff is going to be done actually through a designation of Bausch and Loam as an unrestricted subsidiary, and then they're going to spin off the equity of that unrestricted sub. So the only test they need to meet to do the designation is a seven point six times uh, pro forma total leverage test. Um, that that test is going to, since it's pro forma, it will not include Bausch & Loam's EBITDA, Bausch & Loam's cash, um, or Bausch & Loam's uh, outstanding debt, which is is, is $2.5 billion under a, a term loan right now. So while the company's current total leverage is under that 7.6 times test, that that includes um, you know all the financial metrics of Bausch & Loam. Um, as you uh, in wing one of Wing's slides. Um, it showed that pro forma, uh, you know, without including Bausch and Loam's financials, uh, the company is currently unable to meet that 7.6 times test. Um, under the notes, there's no amendment. Uh, there was no amendment that was that was needed uh, to do the transaction because each of the notes has a builder basket that is backdated to, I believe, 2015, which as of last year provided 13 over 13 billion of capacity. Um, and, and in order to designate Bausch & Loam as unrestricted subsidiary, they're going to need investment capacity. Uh, access to that builder basket uh, requires compliance with a two times fixed charge coverage ratio. Um, again, I believe that uh, including Bausch & Loam's financials, the company can currently meet that test, uh, but without it, uh, they cannot. So they're at a they're at a point where 
um, they're going to need to do something to kind of reduce their leverage and improve their their interest coverage uh, to complete the designation. Um, I, I, you know, I, I've talked to a number of uh, investors about it, about their ability to do it. And, you know, while it's going to take some additional action, whether it be, uh, you know, sales of additional Bausch uh, and loan to public investors, or uh, you know, purchasing some of their uh, later dated uh, deeply distressed debt in the open market, um, they'll I, I, they should have no problem being able to meet those tests in order to do the designation and spin. Uh, what comes after that, you know, obviously I, I, I don't know. But so the only thing really you know that they need to be wary of in order to complete the transaction is pro forma compliance with a 7.6 times total leverage test under the credit agreement and a two times fixed charge coverage ratio under the under their notes. Thanks. And for the company's part, it's not going to be a lack of effort, considering that on the second quarter, they said, quote, the company believes that spinning off Bausch and Loam makes strategic sense, and it remains committed to doing so as soon as it is able to satisfy all applicable conditions as previously disclosed, end quote. So, Kevin, you know, clearly some creditors are a little unhappy about this, but that's actually just one of the uh, the many uh, different litigations that you're following in the company faces. Why don't you walk us through uh, some of the issues that uh, including the Bausch and Lump spin, other litigations that you're following? Yeah, it's it, this is probably the name we get the most litigation uh, centric questions on. Maybe Endo, we get a few more questions um, because people are so tempered to the opioid situation. but. Bausch's situation is a little more um, self-inflicted and a little more unique. Um, essentially, people, in case anyone doesn't remember this, Bausch Health used to be called Valiant Pharmaceuticals um, and rebranded, at least in part, because of securities fraud allegations against the company for the period from 2013 to 2016. Essentially, um, shareholders allege that the company operated as, quote, the pharmaceutical Enron. Uh, their, their view is that the company's uh, SEC filings and, and the statements to investors were, um, were projecting the company as a growth company that was growing through R&D and typical sort of pharmaceutical channels, developing new drugs. And in fact, they were really growing the company through price increases and acquisition of orphan drugs um, whose prices they could pump up. Sounds a little familiar to the Malincrot situation. Um, when they, they have also alleged that the company uh, engaged in some accounting hijinks by uh, improper accounting of sales to Philidor, which was an owned uh, special pharmacy distributor, um, and that resulted in, in large restatements of the, of the company's accounting. There ended up being investigations by the U.S. Department of Justice, the SEC, Congress called the executives in and gave them a solid grilling. Um, the SEC issued a cease and desist order, and the company's stock collapsed. So in 2015, a class action was brought on behalf of shareholders, um, alleging all of these various machinations to manipulate the value of the stock. That was settled in 2019 uh, for $1.1 billion. And at that point, a lot of people forgot about the case. Uh, but one of the things about class actions, and one of the reasons why companies file Chapter 11 to get rid of large litigation claims and mass tort is that outside of chapter 11, claimants can generally opt out of a class action and a large group did in this case. Um, so the securities action, the company paid 1.1 billion to settle those who stayed on board and others, um, a lot of institutional investors and individuals and the usual smallholders 
opted out and uh, moved on and continued the litigation, which has been going on for all these years and discovery very quietly, but is now sort of reaching a culmination. Motions for summary judgment were filed in early August. They are under seal, um, but we can imagine what they say. They say, look at all of those SEC investigations, the cease and desist order, um, going to be very difficult for the company to prove that there was no fraud here. Um, the real issue is damages. And the opt-out plaintiff's damages theory, based on the report of their damages expert, is that the fraud resulted in $4 billion worth of damages to shareholders. You subtract the $1.1 billion from that, and you get the $3 billion damages figure. Um, that's what they're saying the actual injury is. Now, the number could be considerably higher because they're also asking for prejudgment interest going back to 2013. Um, at state law levels, so seven, eight percent a year uh, as amounts compound, you can see that could be a significant amount of money on top of the three billion as well. So it creates a huge potential litigation overhang for the company. They're not really um, addressing it in calls and discussions. Uh, they've reserved, I think, one billion dollars for it. Um, but it would be a pretty big hit and and further drive down the liquidity and the value of the company and and at, at best uh, require a dedication of future cash flow that would take away from their ability to service debt. So wh where this comes into the, the Bausch and Loam situation is that those securities plaintiffs have over the last year and a half in the discovery process tried to get documents related to the Bausch and Loam spinoff. Um, they have tried to get those in the federal securities action in the district court in New Jersey. The, according to the company, the special master in that case, which is sort of a mini judge that the, the federal judge appoints to handle lower level disputes, um, has denied that discovery related to the spinoff to those claimants. And that's just a subset of the remaining claimants. A subset of that subset, so a fairly small group of highly aggressive plaintiffs have filed an action in state court in New Jersey to have the Bausch and Loam spinoff declared a fraudulent transfer under New Jersey state law. Um, those of you who are familiar with fraudulent transfer proceedings in bankruptcy, um, outside of bankruptcy, generally creditors have standing to bring those actions. They've made the typical allegations that, that the spinoff um, of the, the transfer of assets to Bausch and Loam, first of all, is not being um, given in exchange for reasonably equivalent value to Bausch Health. They've also gone to sort of the next step of the transaction. The spinoff as contemplated would uh, put the remaining 80% of Bausch and Loam that Bausch Health owns, um, essentially put it on the market. And when the lockup period ends, the money would go to existing Bausch Health shareholders as a dividend. Um, obviously the general rule um, in the fraudulent transfer context is that payments to shareholders are not for reasonably equivalent value. You don't owe your shareholders any money. They have taken a risk in the future profits of the company, so they're not entitled to dividends um, in, in that situation. And if the company is insolvent, there's no reasonably equivalent value, then you have a fraudulent transfer. Um, so they're saying there's a, tra a fraudulent transfer to BNL, so they would try to extend their claim against Bausch Health for that $3 billion plus interest. They're essentially trying to get an, a judgment from state court that would hold Bausch and Loam 
co-liable for that $3 billion. Essentially, they're trying to escape from the Bausch Health box and assert a claim against a healthier company like Bausch and & Lohm. And the, in their view, and this is similar, again, to what happens in opioid litigations, creditors know, uh, these, these tort creditors know that there are um, note holders with guarantees all over the structure, there are secured creditors with liens all over the structure, and one of their main challenges um, in order to overcome this structural seniority is to try to allege fraudulent transfer claims against uh, more solvent affiliates. So they're trying to get to sort of drag Bausch and Loam into the mire. Their point is that as of the spinoff, Bausch and Loam's uh, debt ratio will be one third of what Bausch Health is, that the Remain Co is would be put into a dire financial situation. In fact, they're in a dire financial situation now. Um, their three claims for that are um, their own judgment. They're saying that if we get a judgment for $3 billion, the company's insolvent, they can't pay it. Um, they're saying that there is a $2.1 billion potential tax liability from 2017. Um, there is some word floating around on there that's not really public yet. It's still being dealt with by the IRS. So we have very little visibility, but it's a real potential hit to the company. So that's, you know, $5 billion plus in potential additional claims against the company. And then they they cite this as a fax and patent loss as, as hitting cash flow. And all of these factors, they say, means Bausch Health is insolvent. If it transfers its assets to Bausch and Loam, then, uh, and doesn't get reasonably equivalent value, then Bausch and Loam is liable for the value of whatever was transferred. And they're also saying that if the company goes forward with its plan to pay the dividend, the proceeds of the Bausch and Loam spinoff to shareholders, they can then sue the shareholders for that money. Um, so it's a very, uh, a very strategic move on their part to try and escape from what they view as a sinking ship in the form of Bausch and Loam. They see another ship pulling up next door with the supplies being loaded over there, and they say, we want that ship too. Um, right now, the case is actually in federal court. So the company removed it to federal court from the New Jersey State Court, said this is related to the securities action, and under federal law, all securities fraud actions have to be uh, brought in federal court and are generally consolidated where they were originally brought. So they're saying it belongs in the federal court in New Jersey. The company's strategy here is really to get the fraudulent transfer action in front of the same judge who's handling the securities action where the discovery was denied previously. Odds are it would then be backburnered until after a trial on the securities claims, probably later this year or early next year. Um, the company, uh, the, the plaintiffs have tried I filed a motion to remand to have the whole thing sent back to state court to avoid that backburnering of the fraudulent transfer aspect of it, because obviously pushing that off lowers their settlement leverage um, because of what they can they can hold the sword over uh, Bausch and Loam. We're still waiting for a decision on that. But again, the motions for summary judgment, the securities action have been filed, and uh, that's expected to go to trial later. Um, you know, we'll see how much the plaintiffs can get out of them. But in terms of liability, it seems like a tough case for the company. Thanks, Kevin. And uh, let's take some questions from the audience because they came in um, as we were all talking. And reminder for everybody, anyone could ask a question by just hitting the, uh, the Q&A widget at the bottom of your screen. So, Peter, uh, related to the, uh, the, the Bausch and Loam and your calculations for what they can and can't do, does the company have the ability to add back future cost savings to adjusted EBITDA for meeting that leverage test? 
yeah so that that's another uh it's a, it's a good point uh yeah the uh bausch 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 health's credit agreement does allow uh for a good deal of flexibility to kind of artificially increase the ebitda um you know given how uh, you know given the the amount of debt that is outstanding um i'm not sure they could kind of make up the difference with with you know with kind of egregious like uh cost savings but yeah no that that definitely could be part of you know part of the method that they use to uh to get the remain code to be in compliance with the necessary ratios and uh, thanks peter and kevin uh, a couple questions related to the uh, the damages claim and uh, whether the company is able to uh set off and uh you know what they've already settled uh on in, in terms of your backup um yeah, back right yeah, on that yeah, and, the, and to be clear, my understanding of what the plaintiffs are, are arguing, and it is based on redacted, unsealed pleadings, so maybe I'm incorrect on that and someone has more information than I do, is that the damages expert for the plaintiffs has testified that there are that the fraud itself caused $4 billion worth of damages to all shareholders of the company, but for the plaintiffs, that are still around, again, they're a subset, the ones that didn't settle, the, their share of that would be 3 billion, and it's effectively the 1.1 billion from the settlement from that 4 billion. Now, I'm not sure if that is scientifically how um, they have count, count, counted that, but that's my understanding of what they've pled. Basically, um, um, you know, in many cases where, in many securities fraud and, and patent cases, which we'll get into in a little while, um, many of the pleadings are sealed. And we are sort of like those those classicists who have to divine what some early Roman history said based on quotes in a later Roman history um, that actually exists. So we're trying to you know read a motion that mentions that damages analysis and constructed. So it's possible that we're wrong. What we know is four billion is the maximum amount, and we're pretty sure three billion is what the shareholders are are trying to get out of the company. Great, thanks. Um, so what I like about the financials and reading SEC filings is we don't need to uh, go back to any Roman documents. So Wing, um, <laughs> why don't you tell us about um, the liquidity? Kevin said there's a lot of, um, you know, th there's some money that's reserved um, against uh, their liquidity. Can you break it down for us? Because it doesn't seem like uh, the headline liquidity is, is really what they have. It could be a little bit less. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, going off what Kevin said about his analogy with the ship, you know, Baoshao or Baoshan loan is definitely that, you know, ship of things supplies, you know, because it's a healthy and cash generative business. So um, we'll talk about that in, in a bit, but looking at just the, even the company's liquidity as of now, um, in terms of cash, the company has a little bit over $2 billion of cash. However, that's not the complete story. There are layers to this where approximately four hundred and forty-six million is related to Baoshan loan. So that, that has to get stripped out from the liquidity. And then further, there's also 1.2 billion of restricted cash um, related to Baosh Pharma and, Baosh and, and uh, Solta. And what that's for is payments that went into an escrow fund under the terms of the settlement agreement regarding certain US securities litigations. So if you strip that out, um, the, the Baoshan loan Sorry, Bausch, Bausch Pharma and Solta only ends up with 347 million of cash. And that gives us a total liquidity of 732 million. Um, 
Mark, so while, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say while we're talking about this about the money going back and forth, there were a couple questions yeah. in terms of the the Bausch and Lomb IPO being a fraudulent transfer, Bausch Health getting cash for the IPO. And I think Wing was just was just illustrating the extent to which how much cash they got out of there. Um, the point would be that the cash that they received was not reasonably equivalent to the assets. So if it is a if they transferred one billion of assets, they got three hundred and forty seven million back, and those assets would presumably be intellectual property licenses of intellectual property that's owned by some entity in Ireland for tax purposes. If they exceed that the money that came in, it's the difference that Bausch and Loam would be liable for as a fraudulent transfer. They would not necessarily get hit with the whole three billion. They would be liable for dollar amount of assets transferred minus cash received. The other element of this um, is that the the again the plaintiffs have said not only the IPO itself is a fraudulent transfer because it does get cash. It, it, assuming they sell the remaining eighty percent of shares on the market, they get the proceeds of that because Bausch Health owns those shares, but they are planning to distribute it to shareholders. And so they're saying that the they're trying to what we call compress or collapse the transaction and say the net effect of all of these transactions is Bausch & Lohm is an independent company. Bausch Health gets just a little bit of cash and its shareholders get virtually everything, sort of like in the IPO fraudulent transfer context. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, so let's um, let, let's let's move on from the liquidity part. And uh, Wing, why don't you just give us a little bit of background as to what projections have, have done, right? Because the company you, you laid out what the company is generating based on their most recent projections uh, in terms of cash, but that numbers come down a little bit, right, over the last uh, couple of quarters, actually, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the in the three iterants of guidance that we've gotten, the company has lowered its guidance for both revenue and EBITDA. Um, from, from the February guidance to the May to now the August guidance, uh, we do see a decrease in both revenue and EBITDA. Um, so one, a big thing that the company talks about is that they lower guidance due to the decline in the pharma and salta segments. Um, Bausch House CFO Tom Bedica, and during the second quarter's earnings call, he said that the outlook assumed a sequential improvement in the back end of the year, driven by sales and marketing investments and seasonal restocking. But this doesn't seem to be the complete story. Um, you know, one thing that you know I would definitely want to talk about is cash flow. You know, before previously we had said that we are estimating that the company would generate 646 million of cash flow for full year 20, 2022. You know, just even doing a quick back of the envelope type of calculations where we take cash from operations like less capex, the two segments, uh, pharma and salsa, combined to burn seventy-one, so sorry, fifty-one million of cash in the second quarter, and burn seventy million in the first quarter. If you look on a consolidated basis, Bausch Health generated seventy-one million of free cash flow in the second quarter and burned one hundred nine million in of cash. In the first quarter of that, Bausch & Loan generated $122 million of cash in the second quarter and burned $39 million of cash in the first quarter. So what that implies is that Bausch Pharma and Sultan Medical combined to burn $51 million in the second quarter and $70 million in Q2. So in the first half of the year, the company has already burned 
hundred and say one hundred and twenty million of cash, but for the company to estimate generating six hundred and forty six million in the back half, that seems highly unlikely and very difficult to achieve. Despite the company telling us that you know those, those the increase in sales and marketing investments and CSO restocking occur in the second half of the year. Um, I guess you know previously we had talked about what the company can do to raise cash, given that we're forecasting them to burn cash for the full year of 2022. An option that we had talked about previously was selling an additional 10% of Baoshan loan equity, which could raise approximately 630 million of capital, assuming an $18 per price per share, um, following a 125-day lockup period of Baoshan loans IPO. Um, What's interesting is that uh, Boston Health CEO Thomas Appio said that there's no time limit for when the remaining amount of Boston loan equity needs to be distributed and the company is open to other divestments, but at a price for those, um, for, for, for a proper price on those divestitures. Um, I guess the last thing I want to mention about cash flow is that um, Bausch actually spends a significant amount on litigation and other um, expenses. Notably, they spent five three hundred and fifty six million of litigation expenses in twenty twenty one, four hundred and twenty two in twenty twenty, and one point four billion in twenty nineteen. Another significant expense is restructuring expense. Year to date, through the six months, Bausch has already spent four hundred sorry forty eight million of restructuring expenses, which is equal to what the company has spent in twenty twenty one. Thanks, Wing. Um, so, Lex, there's a lot of questions uh, related to potential Chapter 11 uh, filing, and I want to get to the part that actually could um, potentially accelerate that, and uh, that's the in. And we're not, you know, we're protecting any uh, sort of Chapter 11 filing, but certainly Zafaxin is the largest selling drug and the loss of exclusivity on that new competition coming in could be extraordinary. So, Kevin, can you just walk us through the, the the litigation, set it up for us? What's going on there with uh, with Vistafaxin and their their IP? Yeah, Mark, and and I'll I'll do this with the preface that I am not a patent attorney. I get I get a lot of calls about this case asking <laughs> me about uh, polymorph molecules, and I have to say, you know, move on. But now that the decision has been rendered, it makes it a little easier for for us unfrozen <laughs> cavemen lawyers to uh, to get through this without a, a chemical engineering degree. Basically. Zafaxin is one of the company's huge sellers. It is an old molecule um, that's used for a variety of purposes. There were three sets of patents at issue um, in this litigation in the company's settlements with others. There's the polymorph patent, which is a patent for a particular form of the molecule. Um, the, there are different polymorphs for different molecules, and it was for one of those. So it's a sort of structural patent. Um, and then there were two treatment method path patents, one for the use of the drug to treat, I'm going to try to say this very slowly, hepatic encephalopathy, or HE, and in IBS, irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. And these are basically treatment regimens that the company patented, um, particular ways of using the drug to treat patients. Um, so uh, these, these came under a lot of challenges. The company has settled most of them. Um, the big three, the ones the company talks about, are Teva, Sun, and Sandoz. 
And basically, those manufacturers agreed not to challenge the patents and try to introduce a generic into the market until the earlier of 2028, or, and this is where it, it gets interesting, um, another generic being introduced into the market. So basically, they said, as long as nobody else introduces a generic to compete with you, we won't introduce one until 2028, a nice standoff. Well, Norwich did not settle with them. They had an ANDA, an abbreviated new drug application, the request for the FDA to allow a company to sell a generic version of an existing molecule for a for the Zafaxin molecule um, that they want to sell a, basically a generic version of Zafaxin. Um, the company Bausch Health, Solix Pharmaceuticals is the affiliated issue here, Solis. Um, there's Salix, apologies. And, and to think we, I spent a lot of time trying to get Mark to pronounce Bausch right before this call. <laughs> um, they sued Norwich for uh, patent infringement on those three patents. Norwich responded, we don't infringe, but anyway, it doesn't matter because those patents are all invalid. And on August 10th, a federal district court judge agreed with Norwich on two of the patents. The judge said that Norwich's ANDA does in fact infringe on all three patents. Um, they weren't buying Norwich's arguments that they were different things. However, the judge found that the polymorph form patent and the IBSD method patent were, quote, obvious. Um, this is maybe the most ridiculous term of art in the legal scholarship today because it would not be obvious to anyone except what they call a POTA, a person um, of reasonable ability in the art. Um, and the judge found that that person prior to the patent being granted, the priority date, um, would have been able to divine the polymorph form of this molecule and the IBSD treatment regimen using prior art, so textbooks and research in existence, and therefore it can't be patented. Basically, you can't patent something that is already known or knowable by a person, a, a person who's engaged in a field uh, that has access to particular sources of information. The HE patent held up, not obvious, but uh, so that since the ANDA related to the HE patent, the whole ANDA was thrown out. Norwich has to get the ANDA resubmitted to the FDA. Um, they'll try to avoid the HE method patent. They should be able to do that though. Uh, Bausch has said they're going to fight that. Eventually, they will probably get an ANDA approved. Um, the company is going to appeal that. Um, but while the appeal is pending, if Norwich does get an ANDA approved by the FDA that gets around the HE valid patent, then they can start selling and introduce their generic version of Zafaxin. Um, if the appeal later goes Bausch Health's way, um, Norwich would owe royalties to Bausch Health for the period during which they were selling that generic. Um, in other words, this is what in the farm industry they call introducing at risk. Um, we don't know just how quickly that's going to happen, but the long story short is that if it does happen, there will be a substantial generic competitor to Zafaxin. And then again, going back to the Teva Sun Sandoz settlements, that would then open the door for those companies to introduce their own generics and just absolutely hack away at, uh, at Bausch Health's um, Zafaxin sales, which are a huge part. And Mark, I think you have the breakdown of exactly how bad this could be uh, for the company. Actually, Wynn does. <laughs> so oh, Wynn, Wynn why, does. Don't you, why don't you tell us how much and when? Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to quickly add to Kevin's point 
Um, so Bausch and Bausch Health said that the appeal process could take approximately 12 to 18 months. Um, also wanted to add that during the second quarter's earnings call, CEO Thomas Appio was adamant that Bausch, quote, strongly disagree, end quote, with a course anticipated decision and will vigorously defend the company's intellectual property. He also added that there's also a number of hurdles that protect Bausch's uh, market exclusivity, um, such as an updated FDA product-specific guidelines and also Norwich needed, needing to secure full FDA, full FDA approval. Um, but if the company were to lose the lawsuit or the litigation trial, um, this could have a significant impact on the company's financials, just given that Typhaxin contributes a significant portion to the company's revenue and EBITDA. Um, in full year 2021, Typhaxin revenue was approximately 20%, you know, and that number has been slowly increasing throughout the last couple of years. Same goes with EBITDA. Um, on average, um, Cyfaxin accounts for um, 30%, north of 30% of pharma's, uh, sorry, Cyfaxin accounts for, yeah, more than 30% of total revenue, excluding Bausch and Loan. So, you know, without Bausch and Loan, the company already has, is already not seeing cash generation from one of the entities, and then further losing the Cyfaxin trial for the deteriorate their financials. Um, so just looking at the company itself or Cyfaxin itself, uh, although Bausch does not disclose EBITDA or cash flow attributed to Cyfaxin, we estimated that um, losing Cyfaxin could represent approximately half of Bausch's <laughs> unlevered cash flow, assuming margins of 75%, due to branded drugs typically having high EBITDA margin. Um, also, losing the Cyfaxin litigation and specifically that loss of exclusivity in the market could have significant negative impacts on Bausch's financial health. Um, some examples that you know we, we've seen, uh, given the introduction of generics in the market, could can include Teva's Copaxone, which generated approximately one billion of revenue in 2021, which was down from approximately 4 billion in 2016. Another example is uh, Endo's Vassal Strix, which declined 30.4% year over year in the first quarter of 2022, which the company is attributing to generic competition and to a lesser extent, lesser extent lower demand related to the pandemic. Endo has also guided to a 88% sequential decline in revenue, but a significant portion of that decline is attributed to other factors, which include COVID. Thanks. And it's also worth adding that, um, you know, on, on, on comparing Endo to, uh, to Teva as well, uh, you know, Teva took a little bit longer for, uh, the, for the, the drug to drop. I think he took a few competitors in there to get to about, you know, about 50% of the share. Endo's decline has been much quicker. You know, of course, we're not you know, sure or aware of um, you know, how that will translate to, to Zavaxin as well, but wanted to put those in as yeah, I think other I, stressed I, examples that we've seen. It's probably pretty analogous to the endo situation because endo, because vasostrict was a similar kind of drug to Zafaxin. It's not, these are not, these are old molecules that have been used for, for particular purposes for a long time. And people are, um, are not really going to 
uh, fuss over the branding on them. Um, getting generics will be a perfectly acceptable substitute as opposed to a drug, you know, to compare it to a drug that's not like that, that is extremely sticky is Actar, uh, Malincroft's drug, which doesn't even have patent protection. Um, the only difficulty is in producing it. And yet, and Malincroft sells a synthetic version overseas itself as an alternative, but continues to sell it in the United States because it is a very rare drug for a very rare condition. Parents choose it for their children. They get it for free in the hospital and they keep them on it. And, and it's a scary drug to move someone over to a generic, very sticky. The facts and vaso strict or more um, sort of mainline pharmaceutical products where a generic could really eat away at them. And with Zafaxin is is um because you have in Norwich is it's probably just a question of when, right? Not if, but for the rest of the manufacturers that that uh Bausch has signed uh you know agreements with that they won't come into the market until 2028, 2029. Is that something that could hold up? Is that the questions that we should be thinking about? Or can other competitors also just come into the marketplace when now they'll uh, they'll have to do, I mean, there's a reason they call it an abbreviated new drug application. The, the FDA makes in recent law has made it very relatively easy to secure approval of a generic drug because it's generic. It's, it's not different. Basically, if you've approved the original molecule, you can approve this one. Um, and so it's a fairly simple process. It is not without complexity. Um, but yeah, I would think it would be a matter of when for Norwich and then the others could file their own and does. Um, and it would all probably move pretty quickly. There's, I'm not sure whether the new Inflation Reduction Act and all of the the drug uh, pricing provisions in there would be relevant, but it, it, it'd be it's probably the the real question is will Norwich go at risk and try to get this drug out while it's on appeal? Are they that confident in the ruling? Um, and we'll see about that. Thanks. And there's a couple of questions on uh, the, the sizes of vaccine, margin impact, and um, you know the loss of, of revenue and the potential profitability, which which Wing went through. So as I talk, I'll just leave the slide that he put together on the the screen. The next subject, uh, Peter, you know, given we went through all the the financials and uh, you know what's uh, what, what's potentially next, uh, you know, for this company from a financial perspective. What's next from a covenant perspective, or what can really the company do uh, to avoid, um, yeah, defaulting, restructuring, or whatever it might be? And there's a question, you know, specific. If you could um, focus on that, and just just in terms of um, total capacity to sell assets, move around assets, which I believe you go into. Yeah, I mean, um, in the context of uh, completing the spin or just generally or, or both? No, generally. So the company itself, right? So, so to the extent that what well, we always have, we started the, the webinar off that 2025, there's been a maturity wall. That's the case right. regardless of what happens with the facts and regardless of what happens with uh, with Bausch and Loam. So what are com what's the company's ability to perhaps capture discount uh, of current debt? to raise new debt, to move around other assets, raise secure debt against that, whatever, you know, whatever it might be that you've seen before or could think about that Bausch could do to avoid or, or circumvent right. right there with the maturity wall. Yeah, so um, I, I mean, the, I think the, the most crucial thing is none of uh, Bausch's, uh, you know, secured or unsecured debt documents 
uh, prohibited or even limited from purchasing any of its uh, senior unsecured notes in the open market. So, um, you know, given where that debt is trading, it could significantly reduce its leverage through open market purchases. You know, that would also help, uh, you know, if they did want to pursue the spin, it obviously would help them. And that's probably the main way that they could uh, get into compliance with the necessary ratios for the spinoff. But just generally, um, yeah, they, they can they can purchase as much debt as they want in the open market. Um, the problem is they don't have a significant amount of balance sheet cash. And while, um, you know, as you can see in the slide, um, you know, theoretically, they they have a you know they have about three point four billion of additional first lien debt capacity. Uh, they have uh, you know over two point five billion of, of additional structurally senior debt capacity, and that doesn't even include uh, outstanding debt at Bausch and Loam. Uh, you know, given uh, in connection with that amendment, uh, there was a separate basket added for that. Um, the problem is, you know, even you know, let's say Bausch wanted to, uh, you know, incur additional first lien debt to, to, you know, conduct the open market purchases. Its first lien debt is trading, you know, at, at fairly distressed prices in the in the 80s, and and I, I believe maybe in the high 70s. So, you know, they can incur additional first lien debt to repurchase the unsecured debt. Just it's going to be expensive. Um, the, the another consideration is that um, in the credit agreement there is a four times. Uh, first lien leverage ratio financial maintenance covenant, while it's only for the benefit of the revolving lenders, um, unlike most uh, you know covenant light deals, the maintenance covenant is in effect uh, every quarter, regardless of whether or not the revolver is drawn. So, you know, currently they have a you know they they can fully access their revolver and they can fully incur the three point four billion of additional first lien debt uh, that is permitted. And by the way, the credit agreement is the most restrictive debt document. That's why I'm, I'm focusing on that. Um, the problem is if they do conduct, if they do pursue the spin um, pro forma and excluding Bausch and Loam's uh, EBITDA, they would only be able to incur about two billion of additional first lien debt and remain in compliance with the maintenance covenant. So, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, there's a lot of uh, moving parts here. So, you know, if they don't do the spin, they can incur uh, 3.4 billion of additional first lien debt. Uh, if they do do the spin, it would probably be down to about two billion. And then maybe you know the uh, the remaining 1.4 billion maybe of uh, second lien or one and a half lien wh whatever, um, they they can't really do any they can do additional transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries raise debt there to do open market purchases. Um, the amendment to the credit agreement included uh, prohibitions on transferring material IP. So not sure um, how realistic uh, you know additional transfers to unrestricted subs are given that they can't transfer any material IP. Um, the one other thing, um, and I've gotten a few questions on, on this, is that uh, Bausch and Loam entered into its own credit agreement in connection with the spinoff, and um, it can it can fund uh, you know at least about 555 million of dividends to Bausch Health. So you know Bausch Health could raise money that way, um, but uh, and and it's at least five and 555 million because right now Bausch Health. Bausch and Loam can uh, access its uh, leverage-based dividend basket, which requires compliance with uh, a pro forma three times total leverage test. Um, so, you know, th they can raise funds and use them to repurchase the debt. But uh, again, just given where all of Bausch Health's debt is currently trading, not sure that makes sense. Um, in terms of asset sales, um, yeah, they, they that that's another viable uh, way for them to raise liquidity. Um, the asset sales sweep under the credit agreement, which is which will govern the the use of uh, the allocation of asset sale proceeds, um, it would require the company to either prepay debt under the first lien credit agreement and not the uh, 
not the secured notes, just given the secured notes do not require any repayments. Um, or the company could reinvest in the business within 12 months um, and use the freed up cash uh, that had been set aside for CapEx to do additional open market purchases. Uh, the problem there is, uh, you know, Bauschel has not had significant CapEx historically. So the company can't all of a sudden say it's going to use, you know, 500 million of asset sale proceeds to fund the next one year of CapEx. So um, most likely asset sale proceeds would be used to repay the term loans. Thanks. And uh, Kevin, so if all else fails or um, the company wants to be opportunistic, depending on how you look at the Chapter 11 process, why don't you walk us through some of the key issues for a Bausch uh, Chapter 11? And there's a lot of questions here. We're running um, short on time. So if you wanted yeah. to you know, answer some of those questions as you sort of go through, that I'll might try. take us to the I'll end try. of the I'll try. But the, I mean, the, and we've written this up a couple months ago. There are a couple of obvious advantages to, to Bausch Health from a Chapter 11 filing um, for from a litigation and, and restructuring perspective. Obviously, restructuring would give them a chance to um, equitize unsecureds, all the usual things you could do in restructuring. From a litigation perspective, that $3 billion debt that we talked about they could have to those securities plaintiffs could effectively be eradicated in a Chapter 11 case. Um, under Section 510 of the Code, claims for the purchase and sale of a security are generally subordinated to creditors in a Chapter 11. They would basically be kicked down to the same level of the securities that they bought or sold and therefore could be zeroed out um, pretty easily. There would also be an advantageous um, way. It would really benefit Bausch and Loam on the fraudulent transfer side. To the extension, to the extent the, the the fraudulent transfer was the transfer of cash from Bausch Health that it received from the Bausch and Loam shares being offered to shareholders, that galloping dividend they used to call it, um, dividend by an insolvent company of those proceeds, Section 546E, the safe harbor of the code, could probably insulate that part of the transfer, the money going to existing shareholders from the sale of Bausch and Loam shares as a fraudulent transfer. Those are most likely payments on in a securities transaction be done through a securities intermediary. Putting that aside, um, that cause of action would require them to sue the shareholders who receive the money and bankruptcy courts are very reluctant to impose um, fraudulent transfer liability on uh, public shareholders, on the, on the holders of shares in a public corporation. From Bausch & Lohm's perspective, um, a Chapter 11 of Bausch Health, if it occurs before this, uh, after the spinoff, um, the companies could, the fraudulent transfer action would become property of Bausch Health as a estate, and they would have the first crack at resolving that fraudulent transfer action against Bausch and Loam. That means they could have a bunch of independent directors appointed. They would kick out a report that said this was not a fraudulent transfer. The company got reasonably equivalent value go to the bankruptcy court, propose to settle it for a payment from Bausch & Lohm of $20 million or something absurdly low, and then try to get that approved under the very lenient standard for settlements in bankruptcy. An unsecured creditors committee might object to that, but generally those hold up. A good example is the Intelsat intercompany settlement. Um, bankruptcy makes it very easy for a debtor to resolve claims against affiliates um, through, I don't wanna use the word collusive, but through a, a, a transaction that the debtors control rather than those creditors. Like I said, the creditors control the fraudulent transfer case under state law. 
once it's in bankruptcy, the company's in charge, and then it can take a number of creative avenues to do that. So the securities litigation, very, uh, very advantageous to the company to Bausch Health to file the fraudulent transfer action, advantageous to Bausch and Loam to file if it's done after um, after the spinoff. Um, you could also do all kinds of, of fund plan classification um, treatments to try to get rid of those shareholder plaintiffs. With respect to the tax liability that we've just briefly mentioned, because we don't have much information, generally the IRS will also cut a, a pretty good deal with a bankruptcy debtor. The last thing they want to do is to wreck a Chapter 11 plan or restructuring. Again, going back to Malincrot, you saw the CMS deal where CMS had a judgment for $650 million for what was basically Medicare fraud. Um, and CMS ended up settling that for $270 million in payments. The feds don't want to drive companies out of bankruptcy, um, especially with tax claims. So a bankruptcy would probably give them good leverage to settle those tax claims. Um, the problem with the bankruptcy, and there was a question about this, what happens if the spinoff has not happened and they file? That means those shares, right now 90% of the shares of Bausch & Lohm that are held by Bausch Health would become property of the estate. Um, and so to get the spinoff then accomplished, if they wanted to do it after filing for bankruptcy, they would have to do a 363 transaction. Extremely rare for a, a company to spin off a business um, in bankruptcy, but it's not rare to sell a business unit. And they could come up with a transaction to say, basically, we're effectively unloading Bausch and Loam um, onto the market, um, try to get that approved. And then that would be also good for Bausch and Loam because the whole transaction would have a bankruptcy judge saying the transfer was free and clear. You would get that wonderful 363 um, language. So in a way, bankruptcy could benefit them if they wanted to try and do um the the spinoff during a chapter 11 my suspicion is they will not and that if they are going to file they'll do it after the spinoff um just because spinoffs again are very unusual it'd be sort of like to bring up intelsat again when intelsat did an acquisition in chapter 11 that's also extremely rare but it does happen um so if they really want to get this done and get the most cash out of it and get around all these covenants issues that peter's talking about i love to tell peter that his covenants mean nothing and his analysis can be thrown out the window as soon as a bankruptcy is filed. Because covenants don't mean anything in bankruptcy. When you file for bankruptcy, you're already in default. So you don't care about breaching your covenants. So they could, if they're worried about the, the EBITDA multiplier, and I'm joking about that. Peter's looking around like, um, <laughs> like he can't believe that. But if they don't want think they can can get under the multiplier if they think there are other covenants issues with their baskets they can try to get around they can always try to get around that stuff in bankruptcy and it's a lot easier to amend those credit agreements in bankruptcy because you can cram down the holdouts so there are a lot of bankruptcy advantages here um whether they'll utilize them is always an open question you have to balance that out against the the loss of equity value and the cost of a bankruptcy case the question really is um, is the bankruptcy going to be more expensive than um, continuing that securities litigation? We heard they're spending a substantial amount. Um, the last point is the facts and probably would not be affected by the bankruptcy. That's that's a situation that's not really going to give them any better uh, leverage on that. 
Well, Peter, actually, good news. You get the last word, actually, and I'll mute Kevin <laughs> so you could uh, insult his profession if you'd like to as well. But there's a couple of questions you wanted to answer. So if you could actually do it quickly because we're running uh, yeah. short on time, but please jump in. So I just got like four questions I can quickly answer. Um, is there a fairness opinion needed uh, to do the spin? There's not. Uh, the affiliate transaction covenants and all of the debt documents uh, exclude uh, any permitted investments and restricted payments, so they're fine there. Um, the 1L debt capacity um, for Bausch & Lomb, um, uh, it does include Bausch & Lomb's EBITDA right now, but it would obviously decrease following the spin. Um, of the two, is the 2.55 million of structurally senior debt uh, in addition to the 3.422? Um, pretty much there on top of each other, there's 427 or so uh, million that's shared. So you would need to reduce that. Um, that's actually all the questions I see from Covenants. If there are any more, I'll, uh, I can respond to the individual uh, people who, who, who ask the questions. Thank you. And, and that's for everybody. That's all the time that we have for today. For those of you new to REORC, we're a global provider of credit intelligence, data, and analytics for law firms, investors, and advisors. If you have any questions, please email customer success at reorg.com, R-E-O-R-G. Remember, a replay will be available for Reorg customers on the webinars and podcast page within two business days. A big thanks to everyone who joined us today. You played a big role in today's webinar with all of your questions, which we tried to get to during the discussion. And of course, a huge thank you to our panelists, Peter, Kevin, and Wayne. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. You can find all our podcasts on the reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend. We'll see you after the Labor Day weekend.